the Bristol Agenda. So, last night, Bristol once again staged a protest which ends up in front page he- news. Um, I'm sure many of you will have seen the headlines by now. So this show, we're going to take a deep dive into exactly what took place last night in this special edition of the Bristol Agenda. It was one of the most serious clashes between protesters and police that has been seen in Britain for years now. You're joined as ever by myself, Priyan Cravel, and Tin Hinson and Rohan Roy. Tin and I were both there on the ground, and so today we'll be reporting on, we'll be bringing you voices from the from the fray, scenes from the riot, and as the dust settles, we're going to try and make sense of how to understand how the police and crime riot bill, bill riot uh, in Bristol unfolded. But first, here's a song. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. There we go, KRS-One with the sound of the police, because that is what we're talking about today. So the protests in Bristol last night were prompted by the Police and Crime Bill, which is currently passing through Parliament, although at the moment it is suspended. So we're going to give over most of the program to this subject today obviously a very big topic a lot of you probably almost everyone will have seen the pictures on the internet even in the national news so we're going to be analyzing what's in the bill we're going to be talking to adam campwell corn who uh, has documented minute by minute everything that happened in the protest yesterday on the ground um, me and priyanka were attending the earlier part of the march as well so we recorded lots of interviews with people who were there for different reasons and we're going to be looking at the motivations of different people who went there because I think yeah it was not a homogenous crowd so we're going to start with uh, somebody that we spotted this this was a track this was a clip that I recorded about 3 p.m yesterday Oh, sorry. And then we have Rohan Roy, who's going to give an overview of the parliamentary process. In fact, let's start with that, because uh, <laughs> um, that's a bit of context for what's going on. So, Rohan, yeah. what is going on? OK, thanks, Tin. Yeah, so this protest was against the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which will grant more powers to police with regard to policing and shutting down protests, as well as traveller community sites. So this comes after a year of mass mobilisation of protests like Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion. Um, and, you know, noticeably also during a time of um, lockdown. So the four points that people are finding most controversial are it gives pa- police more powers to arrest protesters for being noisy, for being a nuisance, for being annoying. Um, it also gives statutory instruments to Pretty Patel, which we haven't seen before. Longer sentencing for defacing or destroying statues. And as I've said, uh, a clampdown on traveller communities. Now, the timing of this is particularly poignant. Sarah Everett's kidnap and murder by the hands of Wayne Cousins, a metropolitan police officer, on the 3rd of March. Allegedly. At allegedly, and, sorry. Yeah. Allegedly, of course. Sparked an outrage across the country. Uh, and this fury was further fueled by the scenes of harsh police clampdown on, uh, on a vigil in Clapham Common on the 13th of March. Uh, and these actions finally induced the Labour Party to switch its position on the bill from abstention to opposition. This also coincides with the context of an ongoing inquiry into spy cops who were undercover police agents who infiltrated left-wing groups from the early 2000s. This included undercover police forming relationships and even having children with unknown activists 
who have since deemed this practice raped by the state. Nerves are raw and tensions are high. In this context, the police specifically outlawed the demo from going on yesterday, citing coronavirus. So it's important to get uh, those facts. Um, now, we, we're going to sort of drive into that bill in more detail, but uh, the way that we're going to do it is by uh, speak, listening to the voices of people who were on the ground yesterday. Uh, and, of course, in our analysis, we will be bringing in lots of the reaction because, well, there's been no shortage of people lining up to condemn the scenes we saw yesterday. So we'll be giving fair heed to them as well. Okay, so you're here with your young daughter. Uh, how old is she? She's two and a half years old. Okay. And why did you think it was important to come down? Uh, uh, well, so it's going to be affecting her generation massively, uh, hugely. Oh, she's <laughs> taking over the microphone. You've got a future radio journalist in training there. Oh, wow. And so you think this bill would uh, impact her generation what do you say to the argument that the police already have lots of powers to lock protests and it wouldn't make that much difference? Well, they have had, but they haven't ever really imposed many of them and they don't usually try and push forward many of the fines either. Um, this is now going to make it a, a, a hell of a lot harder for anyone to, even students, to want to come out and say anything whatsoever at all. Uh, do you have faith that uh, you're going to be listened to and that uh, this protest is going to make a difference? Um, I feel that now is definitely the best time to try and do our best. The implications otherwise are going to become extraordinarily harder for any of the younger generation, anyone actually, to want to say anything in the future. The way they've tried to cut down Speaker's Corner and try and cut down anyone saying anything, and now on social media as well. This is the last straw, really, isn't it, for them to try and take away people who are actually being able to take to the streets. So as we heard there... uh Probably, I'd say, would you say, Priyanka, that was the main motivation for a lot of the protests? Certainly the ones earlier in the day, people were concerned about their right to protest and to demonstrate. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the uh, placards that we saw were saying things like that this was an abuse of um, people's human rights, the right to assemble and express yourself and protest. Uh, I think also a lot of people were saying that this um, they were worried about the impact this would have on democracy because, of course, mm. protesting, having your voice heard, free speech is a big is a big part of that. Um, mm. And I think the, the 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 measures that have been put in place do um, you know make some significant infringements to that. I mean, now police chiefs will not only be will be able to put more conditions on static protests, so ones that don't march just move, you know, they can set a start time, a finish time, set noise limits, um, and apply these rules to a demonstration, even if you are only mm. one person. Uh, so, you know, even if there's an individual, say, with a with a placard and a and a microphone, that's um, you know that that will be outlawed under these new new bills, and mm. you can be fined up to two and a half thousand pounds for this. Because I think there's a bit of confusion about this, isn't there? Because you know, there are already a set of laws restricting rights to protest. It's it's not like in America where we have some constitutional rights to free speech or something. Mm. But at the moment, police generally have to show that if they want to restrict a protest, it they have to prove that it could result in serious public disorder, serious damage to property, or serious disruption to the life of the community. And this is being replaced with a far more vague provision. 
Yeah, so the proposed law actually includes an offence of intentionally or recklessly causing a public nuisance. And I think uh, one of the the um, definitions of nuisance includes being an annoyance. And so a lot, I know a lot of people were saying, you know, how on earth do you interpret that? Am I going to be arrested for being annoying? Um, but I think what, what this is uh, maybe targeting... In particular, are things such as you know occupations or gluing people gluing themselves to things, which, as we've seen, was a was a tactic at Extinction Rebellion protests mm. um, and and things like this. So, I mean, obviously, lots of protesters have spoken out against this. The people who down there, you know, people might not be that surprised by that. Uh, but we've even had Theresa May, the well, of course, previous Prime Minister, also previous Home Secretary, spoke out against this. And I'm just going to play a little clip of that now. I wanted to raise just one area, um, which um, I have to say has already been raised, but I do have some concerns about some of the aspects of public order um, provisions in this bill. I absolutely accept that the police have got certain challenges, for example, when people glue themselves to vehicles or the gates of of Parliament. But freedom of speech is an important right in our democracy. However, however annoying or uncomfortable sometimes that might be. And I know there will be people who will have seen scenes of protests and will have said, why isn't the government doing something? To which the answer, in many cases, may simply be because we live in a democratic, free society. So I do worry. So, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, this is a bill that is, I mean, people um, have linked it to Extinction Rebellion's uh, actions in London uh, the year before last, which the Met found very difficult to deal with, and there was serious disruption to the city. Mm. Ultimately, they were able to disperse um, those protesters, but they... I don't know, what's the argument here, that they had to go through too much paperwork to do so? I mean, what, basically what I'm trying to get at is, do you think this is actually a problem that the government is legitimately or trying to deal with, or is this something that's designed for public consumption? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, especially because it, I can't... It seems also in, as this has gone through the Commons, that the government doesn't um, t- tend to sort of sidestep the when it is brought to their attention that this is going to curb uh, people's right to, mm. to protest. And, you know, they've said that... Uh, the protests can only be limited by the police if they uh, believe that they have a good reason to impose restrictions if it's to ensure public safety or prevent crime. But again, and you know, and they insist that that will respect the human rights. But I think it's quite a difficult one to... I yeah, it, I think it's a difficult line to toe. And the only defence I've really heard from Priti Patel is that, well, this was in our manifesto and this is what the people have voted us in to do. This is our mandate. But that is only partially true from what i've uh, read the the conservative manifesto that they ran on did say that there would be tougher sentencing but there was no mention in that of uh you know curtailing the right to protest so mm. it, it is interesting and i mean one thing that's been pointed out is that a lot is going to be left at the home secretary's discretion um exactly. so you know obviously there's a case of kind of marking your own homework there where there's you know, if you're the institution that's being protested against, I mean, you know, why would you allow that to yeah, yeah. be the case? Yeah. I mean, we'll get onto this later as well, but I mean, people have even made that argument in terms of one of the things that's use that's good about democracy is that it 
ensures some stability it's like that mm. uh, protest is a way of people sort of letting off some steam or something and i have even heard the argument that this will actually make the system more unstable and make um violent clashes more likely yeah i mean i think that's definitely something that we'll we'll get onto later but i think it is interesting to note in that same clip that you just played if you if you uh listen on that, her, that theresa may does say look it's it's affording yourself more um powers as the home secretary is something that you need to watch and that is the interesting kind of legislative mm. difference in this that this has gone now from common law to a statutory instrument which gives the home secretary mm. more powers than they ever had before and the fact that there was our one home secretary a former home secretary warning uh the next one you know we can see mm. that there's a, a although she did eventually vote for it though. oh well of course yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. um I mean, interesting, the free speech side of it as well, which the government is making a lot of fuss about, but at the same time bringing in something that directly restricts um, free speech. Right, now we're going to move on to a different aspect, which is something that uh, has got less attention, uh, but we think is very important. So I'll play this clip. So you've got a sign saying travellers' rights matter. Um, I've heard lots of people talking about the protest side of the bill, but what's what's it going to do for the traveller community? So the anti-trespass laws are going to basically make us uh, extinct. They're going to take us out, and um, it's racism. It's pure racism. They're going to steal our rights by the Trespass Act. We will not be able to live anywhere. We won't be able to be... They're going to say... They say to us, we can be nomadic, we can do that. I'm a... Basically, I'm a traveller without a tow. I cannot be... I've got no pro, uh, postal address to get my licence, so how can I be nomadic unless I'm on my feet, yeah? yeah? I have to ask for everyone. If I can't reside on private property or an authorised camp for a certain amount of time, yeah, then I can't get a postal address. I can't be nomadic. I can't move about. What do you want me so, to do? So what do, they're, they're saying... Do you want they... me to be horse-drawn with an untaxed, unmot'd horse and cart down the M32 and show you what illegal travelling is about? I, I will. We've, uh, we live on a private land at the moment and uh, we don't have uh, planning permission for our site. However, we've been there a long time, but the council now have got more rights to um, take that away from us because they don't want legal travellers' sites, but they don't want illegal ones either. So therefore, where do we go? We have to leave, but where do we go? Do they put us in houses? Do they make us homeless? Because they can now have the right to take away our homes. They can fine us. They can they can take our caravans. So we are, we are really under threat, yeah. Because they'd they say... Uh, that you could go to a, like an authorised site. What's the problem with that? Okay, so there's not enough authorised sites. And also, we are within a community, there is a lot of us, but we all live within our own little communities. That's like saying, oh, there's a housing estate, you all can go live there in one group, you know. We're all families and, and small communities within one big community, and we want to live on our own, with our own groups. And that's who we want to live with. Just because I'm a traveller doesn't mean that I want to go live with the other tra- all the other travellers in that one site that's allowed. Like, we should have our, our own space. And the thing is, is we've been, we've actually got our own space we've got private land that we live on but we are told now by the council that we're going to be moved on even though it's private land that they've allowed us to live there for years and so why do you think the government wants to do this to travelers what's behind this sort of persecution well, I think they are threatened by our freedom. They're threatened by the fact that we aren't sort of registered. They don't know where we live. We don't have like a fixed addresses. We don't pay council tax and things like that, which I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but we stand on our own two feet. Um, for example, like at my site, you know, we pay for our own bins and things like that to be removed, all of that kind of stuff. We, we are within our own community. We, we have our own little sort of circle and, and uh, people are trying to eradicate that and put us in boxes. 
So is this something that you were born into? What's the uh, what's it like in the Traveller yeah. community? So um, grown up with kind of prejudice and racism against people like us, um, you know, always being bullied and being told that we're different. Um, kids, you know, going to school, being told that you're you know, dirty, you're smelly and all that kind of thing. And it's not true. Um, I've actually had an education. I went to school and did all the, all the right things, but still was persecuted all the way through and continue to be to this day. Yes, so that is another aspect of the bill that people are worrying will uh, impede on people's rights. In this case, the right to roam campaigners are worried that it could threaten that. So it turns trespass, this anti-trespass law turns trespass from a civil offence to a criminal one. Um, An encampment also has now uh, changed the definition. It's now a single vehicle could be classed as an encampment. And... uh, the bill would also grant more powers for the police to prosecute gypsies and travellers if they determine them to be likely to cause significant distress. So, again, you know, vague, vague interpretation and uh, a considered overstep to what previous legislation... I mean, that's like, that's like the mini- minority report. That's future crimes, isn't it? it, it yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it really does give police a very broad brush to um, be able to attack what we know is a persecuted section of the community and I think this is something where you can really see how the media narrative and all those discriminatory headlines, prejudicial headlines um, have fed into this agenda. I mean, what is interesting there, the person who was talking in the clip was saying that there's like an element of jealousy there and you know that mm. the the government or the rest of the population is somehow jealous of travelers freedoms what what do you think of that well i think it's it's maybe not just a jealousy in a kind of ideological way about freedom it's like she said it's that these people don't seem to not be playing by the rules somehow that they're getting the benefits of society without contributing contributing to mm. it like not paying council tax for example but again i mean there, there is a great organization in bristol called vehicles for change where they do ensure we, we, you know which liaise with the council to try and set up uh, legal encampments in the city and they do for example crowdfunded council tax and so they do try to uh, contribute in their way but i think that is an interesting point that that she raised is that it, the government seems to be playing into what we know to be a tabloid perception mm. of um you know that this idea that there's a lot of crime in in traveler communities and also i think because there there is an, another aspect of this bill which kind of encourages people to report on each other and i think it's you know inviting people as the woman said to uh, to, to sort of report people from a place of, a, of an unfair, unconscious bias. Mm. Right, we're going to keep moving through because we've uh, got lots to cover. So this is going to be talking about the potential people concerned about abuse of power. Uh, we started at two and, um, yeah, we just, like, marched about the streets, yeah. <laughs> getting excited. <laughs> and uh, what you to be the because I've experienced a lot of... I've witnessed the corruption within the police force and the brutality, and obviously what happened to Sarah Everard has exploded what's occurred, but we know that that happens all the time anyway. Like, I knew someone who was killed in police custody. I've, like... In Bristol? No. But um, this is a long time ago, and before then, you know, I didn't, like... 
I didn't really check up on it. I just sort of like brushed it aside. Like it's the police, you know, we've got to trust them. Like they're always here. The police, like, haven't. They're not a concrete thing in like humanity. We don't need them. Like I've realised now that actually the world would run much smoother without the police force and they do much more harm than they do good and they're not protecting anyone. I've been assaulted by the police, I know lots of people have been assaulted by the police, I'm fairly arrested. Like the idea that we get 10 years in prison for protesting, for being a nuisance or slightly irritating or causing an annoyance because we're standing up for something that we know is right and freedom of speech, like it's, it's a ludicrous concept. So this is probably going to be the aspect of this that will probably be most controversial to people listening to it. I think lots of people, certainly in the public statements that we've had on this today, have got a very high opinion of the police. Um, but that wasn't um, shared, obviously, by the people who were there. And there is a sort of contingent of people in Bristol who are very critical of the police, I mean, and lots of bits of the country. Obviously, uh, the woman in that clip made a claim about her friend dying in police custody. Obviously, we weren't able to verify that ourselves. However, uh, Inquest uh, have collated the figures, and there are one thousand. There have been one thousand seven hundred eighty deaths in police custody, or otherwise following contact with the police in England and Wales since nineteen ninety, um, and. I don't think there's been a single officer convicted for any of those deaths. Um, we have to call them that because, you know, they're from multiple different reasons. Um, so, yeah, so there, there was that element and quite a idealistic take as well on making a more sort of fundamental uh, view that we don't need the police. Yeah, I mean, I think this this argument of defunding the police is one that came from uh, America, probably because of last year and everything that happened with George Floyd and sort of, I think, the really apparent um, discrepancy in in uh, in policing when it comes to so the races. racial aspect, the as racial well, aspect yeah. as well, which I know is another point that people were saying as well. Um, so yeah, I think in this idea of police violence, police brutality, which has been, I think, raised on the agenda of people's public consciousness in the past few years, it was definitely something that people had something to, to say. Mm. Right. So now um, there's another reason that people were out, like, and we've got to be honest about it. I think uh, it's probably something energetic as well to do with uh, people being locked in. And I think this next clip captures that. Ellie's the best person to speak to. Just, just, just tell me what's happening. What's happening? I'm just excited that people are back out again. Um, and Bristol is being Bristol. Um, but yeah, though, like the the fact that it's got a similar energy to June 7, when that, that first kind of surge of people coming through. Um,
was speaking with uh, Solomon O.B. there, who is a local poet and was, uh, you know, around making some some very moving speeches during the protest. I think it was a really uh, a case in point that we we couldn't finish that interview because there was a sound system. I think it was also the point where I think the tipping point of this protest, where uh, people had gone down to Bridewell Police Station and protesters had begun, or a group of uh, a minority of these protesters had begun pushing a police van and uh yeah i would say that this was the point that things started to, to take on a new phase um we've got a clip to illustrate that and we'll play now and he's the best person to speak to just, just, just tell me what's happening what's happening it was a peaceful like obviously we all started in college green then it made its way down through broadbean and castle park and then yeah, because obviously this is all against the police, isn't it? I mean, what happened to Sarah, the bill that's just been passed and stuff like that, but now obviously it's all kicking off, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the police want it. I mean, some of them look ready to fight, you know what I mean? But I understand the people are angry and that's why it's kicking off, but... What? I'm pretty pissed off. Yeah, especially as a woman, do you know Yeah, what I mean? like, they, I don't know, I don't see why they want... We were all sat outside peacefully and one of them could have come and given a speech, they could have come and said something... Okay, so so we're going to be uh, obviously this narrative of what's happening uh, is still contested. Uh, so we're going to be uh, next to, to go through this. We're going to speak to Adam Cantwell Corn from the Bristol Cable, who has live tweeted the whole thing. So Adam, uh, you were at the protest throughout the day and into the night last night. Um, can you tell us, yeah, uh, how things unfolded? Yeah, so I was there. I actually went to the main demonstration and went home. And when I heard that there was like some sort of confrontation going on at Pride, when I went back down there with my colleague Alon, also from the cable. And it was basically, at that point, there was like some tension. Um, but like, you know, different groups were engaging in different ways. Like some were sat in the street, some were sort of like remonstrating with the police. Um, at that point, there wasn't that many police. Um, and I can't, I don't know if I recall correctly, it will be in the videos, but I think most of them weren't in right here. Right. Um, but then basically as the sort of like hours passed, it sort of like basically the kind of like tension and escalation sort of uh, built up very dramatically. Um, Was there a particular sort of flashpoint for that? You know, I couldn't, I have to say, obviously, I couldn't really see everything that was going on. Mm. You know, I was just sort of like at ground level and was like trying to film and along with trying to film. And I was basically like minding his back, like then mm. like over or, you know, there was like some projectiles and stuff like that. Um, but from what I did see, and like it is obviously only what I did see, that basically the police brought in some dogs from the town side, right. and that basically made everybody get up the, off the floor and sort of like run away from the dogs. And then um, some members of the crowd basically went to sort of like confront like the three or four dog uh, handlers. So, so um, just to be clear, people were sitting on the ground in front yeah, of not, Brightwell police station, is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not everybody was. Yeah. Um, and you know, as you, in these situations, there's different crowds aren't homogenous. You know, yeah. like there's different people that have different approaches. They want to do different things. Uh, and throughout the evening, also there was like different. You know, there was like this debate going on. Like some people were like, "That's not right." Like, like let's yeah. have a physical confrontation. Others were saying, like, you know, well, obviously, one, you know, we're engaged in it in some form or another. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the base of the dogs came, and basically after that point, I don't know if that caused it, but it was certainly after that point that the whole thing started to sort of, like, uptick. Mm. And it was also around then, obviously, it started to get quite, uh, you know, dark, 
Yeah. Um, and, and then basically from then on, it was just became like a pretty serious altercation with, um, you know, like police, uh, with like uh, fully clad, like white, uh, white police. Um, and it was that, that, that time, fireworks. Yeah, yeah, so I was going to ask yeah. about the fireworks being thrown and the, and the van being set on fire. People have seen those images. Did you, yeah. did you catch that? Yeah, I did, yeah. I mean, there was this, there was uh, on one of the side streets, I can't remember the one, that's, uh, name of it, it's one over from um, Silver Street, basically leading from Bridewell down onto Nelson Street. Um, there was this completely unattended van that was there, um, and it started to, um, processes started to, um, like, damage it and, like, wrap it up, and then um, eventually, like, uh, got in the doors, and, yeah, it was set alight. Um mm. And then, yeah, that, that sort of obviously went up in, like, quite a serious place. Uh, there yeah. was another car that went up um, around the corner on Nelson Street that I didn't actually see, um, but it sort of happened later. Yep. Um, but at that point, the police weren't around that van at all. And right. They just sort of, like, formed a protective barrier around the uh, Bridewell entrance um, because oh. that was where, well, obviously, what was their main, you know, yeah, yeah. like, intent to try to sort of... Um, get in front of basically. Okay, and just one final question: Did you have a sort of overall opinion of how the police handled the uh, the march of demonstration? I mean, it's hard to tell. Like, like obviously, I did see like everything, mm. you know. And it's interesting because obviously, um, Chief Constable Andy Marsh made a statement today, and one of part of that statement was they, they made a tactical decision to not make arrests. Mm. On, on that day. Um, I don't know why, but like, I mean, if you can look at the statement, but I think I recall it saying something along the lines of that would have kind of like caused like more immediate like provocation. Yep. Um, but, you know, that was, I guess, like later on. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to say, and I think there needs to be obviously like a full and open investigation into how the whole like situation was handled. Because the, the thing about it is, is that, like, there's going to be a lot made out of, like, the people yeah. that went there intent on, you know, violence and, like, confrontation. Um, and, like, regardless of that, and, like, people will debate that, there was also a lot of people, and I was talking, like, young people, like, 18-year-olds, yeah. like, boys and girls, younger, just, like, sat on the floor there as well. And a lot of yeah, people yeah. were really scared right. um, about all of this. And, obviously, a lot of them, you know, and, and others were, you know, seemingly more, like, I guess, like, comfortable in that environment and sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of, like, you know, remonstrating with the police and obviously there was quite significant clashes between, like... Thanks and, to uh, uh, Adam cantwell Corn from the Bristol Cable there. Him and Alon were live-tweeting the whole thing. They've re- uh, released a report which has gone up on the cable there. And thanks for bearing with the uh, slightly dodgy sound quality. Um so I think I think two things when we're talking about why this what why this ended up as it as it did I think perhaps there was a case of like a misdirected anger that I think at the at the end of the last protest you know in BLM that a lot of people were comparing it to this great groundswell of of activism and and a public show of of support and solidarity is that Colston uh, and the toppling of that provided this great catharsis because there's no way we can topple the whole systemic problem of racism but you can topple a statue and that was a really uh, an apt symbol in many ways and I think maybe people were trying to achieve that same kind of catharsis here but because this was like an amalgamation of so many different issues 
issues um, that that also meant. Uh, and while that was a strength of the protest in the beginning, maybe it also is a part of the reason why it sort of started to lose its coherence and maybe Bridewell Police Station became kind of this, this, the building which people directed their anger to or they directed it to the, poli- to the police. But, you know, it was... Uh, that maybe that's why it got a bit out of control. And I think the second thing is that um, uh, Alon Avaram from the from the cable, uh, who was there at the scene, he he posted a picture on Twitter. Uh, it was a picture of a burnt out police car, and he said, "I hadn't seen scenes like this since uh, the Mark Duggan riots." So that was the the riots that happened a few years back with um, 2011. 2011, exactly, which uh, followed the the death of Mark Duggan. And again, he said that that did that was a protest that started out with anger over the death of a man uh, you know it happened in the context of um, the financial collapse uh, economic frustration and when those um, when that anger wasn't listened to that's when it started to uh, kind of lose its coherence and descend into a bit of a riot and I think an analogous thing happened here you know it was Sarah Everard it's a murder it's something that people can point to you know we have this really unsettling political situation at the moment a bleak economic future and, and things sort of start to unravel. And I think it's also a bit of a mm. warning, you know, just, just to get all, all my takes in before you guys jump in, um, is that organisers denying um, protesters the chance to organise, you deny, like, actually, that can be a real strength. Someone from Extinction Rebellion was telling me that, you know, they they do liaise with the police. It actually empowers the police to, ha- to, to be on the side of protesters instead of pitting them against each other. Those organisers could de-escalate a situation. And obviously, here, this is unorganised, leaderless, uh, and, and perhaps that was a reason for for its descent, but I think it's important for the original message of this protest not not to be lost. Rohan, just quickly, if, uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think I mean I, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said there, Pri, um, in the sense that I think it, it was obviously multi-issue, um, and I think it's interesting as well that you mentioned that the, the strength of the young turnout in it, and I think that although this is a multi-generational issue, it, it is primarily the turnout was amongst millennials and dare I say Gen Z, and I think it's important to factor in the fact that these generations differ from older generations in their values, in their relationships to the economy. Um, they have a completely different outset, and and I think for this group, there's a lot of hopelessness. So we have an 80-seat conservative majority. We have Brexit. We have a Labour Party only committed to abstention. We have a looming unemployment crisis, a looming climate crisis, and a track on civil liberties and the constrained energy of a year under lockdown. And I have to conclude that protests come in no small part from a lack of hope, mm. a lack of political future, a lack of economic future, and a rage and an energy, which frankly I don't see ending here. Right, on that bright note, <laughs> let's uh, let's turn to something a little bit more utopian. So we're going to Kiran Katra's latest episode of Demand a New Normal uh, with the Bristol Sex Workers Collective. Good evening to you and welcome to our weekly Demand a New Normal session brought to you by myself, Kiran Katra, via Plan C with BCFM. A session for you and me to come together and think about what isn't working in this old normal, this everyday existence pre-COVID and pre-2020. We move on from which parts have been hurting us to what we want to do better this time around. We consider what our demand should be from the powers that be, from our communities and from ourselves. We aim to gather your demands and use them in helping us come together to formulate a better, fairer, new world. 
We broadcast interviews with fascinating groups and individuals who are actively engaged in demanding change, as they too refuse to go back to the way things were. Today we have Emily join us. Emily is the dancer in one of Bristol's SEVs, sexual entertainment venues. She joins us today as a representative from the Bristol Sex Workers Collective, and together we discuss what sex workers in the sex industry actually need. We take it one step further and we discuss the precarious situation of sex workers in Bristol right now, as the city is in the process of potentially closing all SEVs permanently. Emily shares the collector's views on what the end of the industry would mean for them. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Just a couple of questions to begin with. Can you tell us a bit how you came to work in the industry? So basically, I am also an artist. Um, I do circus. It's kind of perfect for us, you know, allows us to have the financial support that we need to um, support our career alongside. And obviously, because we don't have to necessarily have to work a lot that gives us time to to train on the side as well so yeah I was doing like minimum wage jobs and stuff after finishing my course my sex course uh, mm-hmm. and it was just not really working out for me I was quite miserable and mm-hmm. barely making ends meet and um, yeah a few friends who, who'd worked there was just like why don't you come and work in the strip club and I was like oh I'm not sure this is for me and then I, I did and it worked out quite well uh, and I, I, I love it so you're a creative by heart, but this allows you to pursue your creative visions financially. Most people working at the club have, they need time for something else. You know, some people are parents, some people care for disabled family members. And um, there's other creatives. Um, and there's obviously simply girls who just love their job. And that's just what they want to do. I mean, that's not mutually exclusive with people having okay alongside from what I'm hearing this this type of work enables flexible hours some people work two nights one night some people just whenever because you are self-employed we can book in shifts whenever we like mm-hmm. uh, some people it's just it's perfect especially when you have um, um a family and kids to care for I mean it allows them to, to spend more time with their family especially childcare is so expensive so you did have other jobs I'm not going to ask you for details, but how does this compare financially for you? Um, I mean, sometimes I make in a night what I made in a month. <laughs> right. And instead of just spending every minute of the day just being like, oh, my God, I want to go home. I hate this. I'm mm. with my friends. Um, just, yeah, talking to stranger, but it's quite fun. You do learn quite a lot about people. In Bristol. We have the issue of um, our council wanting to close down these clubs. Can you tell me what impact that would have for the workers there currently? Um, obviously, stripping in the UK is a legal profession. So mm-hmm. legally, we, we can still work, we can still dance, mm-hmm. but it's just that the clubs we're going to work in are not going to be licensed, regulated and safe. Um, it's going to push... Um, our clubs underground and yeah we'll just be working all over the city in clubs that are not licensed and that don't have the security that clubs currently have. From what you're saying is even if they reduce the nil part the strippers will just work elsewhere? Well yeah our job is legal so we'll work private parties and um, mm-hmm. get booked to go into hotel rooms I guess to do yeah pri- more private parties 
Um, I think um, from what what I've understood too, I think uh, legally some bars and clubs can host um, strip night like once a month. Technically, we, we could work there. It just means that obviously these clubs and bars don't have the security um, that we have in our club. Um, so, yeah, we'll just work all over the city in unsafe venues. That's all it is. That's the only difference they'll make. And I just think it's kind of obviously ironic that the people pushing mm-hmm. this are women's groups calling themselves feminists. They want to fight for, um, you know, women's safety. Um, but yet because we're, we're sex workers, we're strippers, apparently mm-hmm. we're not worthy of that having that safety. So this all comes as part of the um, equalities gender legislation that has been passed at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Marvin Reese says that he has been lobbied by lots of feminist organisations saying that um, if we continue to have these venues within Bristol, we will be going against the legislation and we will not be fighting for equality. I mean, that's just um, obviously not true. I mean, I get... In a way, I understand Marvin's position in the way that, as a man, um, politician, obviously he wants to represent his constituents, he feels like his responsibility is to listen to women. But what he's not realising is that these women then don't represent everyone. They're white, middle-class, middle-aged women. Mm-hmm. They have no idea, you know, from their ivory, you know, towers. Um, what the world is like for us um, they don't understand why people get in those lines of work mm-hmm. um, has um has the council reached out to the to the workers in the clubs um not so the way we learned about the council um proposing this motion nail mm-hmm. cap um we learned it in the press all of right. us mm-hmm. learned it through Bristol 24-7 so so we all got in touch with um the council um, right. who obviously told us there was going to be the um hearing yeah. um, so they invited us to be part of the committee hearing to submit statements they gave us a minute each to speak right. the meeting yeah. and is a minute and long enough for them to understand how much this means to us and how damaging this this would be and I guess um, you would hope that any any um, type of consultation would involve the people that it affected from the beginning. Yeah, they see. They say they've they've had a work group since um, twenty sixteen, I think, and um, yep. working on on this motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just there. Why is there a work group working to like against us when we're we're not inviting those debates? I mean, how? How can you legislate an industry that you don't know the first thing about? Mm-hmm. When, when we do reach out to you, which we have done a lot, then listen to us, which they're not doing at all. They're either um, not responding to us at all. Um, Are they not? Or, or when they do respond, they're very rude, patronising and dismissing. Are you referring now to other feminist organisations? Um, yeah, obviously there's the Bristol Women's Voices, the Fawcett Society, um, yeah. and then there's obviously, you know, MPs like Sangam Debonair, Kerry McCarthy that have been very rude to us. Right, okay. I'm sorry to hear that. Their argument is 
that evidence suggests that the harassment of women and domestic killings are linked to entertainment venues. Okay. Yeah. So, so what's your um, response to that? It's just um, we've asked them several times to um, show us the evidence. Have you? Um, yeah, we. <laughs> I guess in a way we're kind of harassing them. Like, okay, fair enough. Where is the evidence? Because. I mean, most of the women, you know, work in that club. We do consider ourselves feminists. So mm-hmm. if we were to, you know, learn that our profession put women in danger, I think we would decide to stop ourselves. But obviously okay. that's not the case. And and with the potential closure of these venues, you know, you're saying that there'll be 100 people sort of losing their jobs. Is there an exit strategy in place? Have you been supported? Will you be supported? Um, no, not at all. I mean, uh, from the um, the meeting with the council a couple of weeks ago, um, mm. one of the councillors, I, I don't remember who it was, but one of the councillors did ask um, if this was to go through, will, should we help those people finding new employment? Should we help them retrain? But mm. no, none of us is asking to be retrained because none of us want to stop doing our job. Um, mm-hmm. It is just very condescending and patronizing I mean Mm -hmm. or yeah maybe if you can find me another job where um I make hundreds a day uh, Mm -hmm. you know if if, yeah you find me another job that I enjoy just as much um, and doesn't need you know special qualifications and yeah I can make the same amount of money then um yeah why not uh, yeah, from what, from what I'm hearing from you, like a living wage would be an exit strategy from this. Definitely one of the main reasons why people, uh, women, are pushed into sex work because we can't um, sustain, you know, the cost of living by working um, by yeah, living on minimum wage. That's just not feasible anymore. Mm. Um, so that's why so many of us do get into sex work. Yeah, and. Over time, I'm going to ask you, um, attitudes towards sex work, has it changed? Um, I think for the, the last few years, um, with a new wave of feminism, um, it's a lot more inclusive of, you know, um, transgenders and sex workers. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, that's what I keep claiming, that a, a lot of people start claiming too. I mean, there's there's no feminism without sex workers. Um, mm. So you do feel that you're getting more of a voice and things are potentially moving in the right direction with this new wave of feminism. Yeah, it is slowly moving in the right direction. I think also rather shockingly for me, we've got a Labour mayor and it's a Labour MP that's that's putting forward the um, sexual sexual exploitation bill. So the the party of the working class. Yeah, pretty ironic to be honest. Um, yeah, it's very pretty disgraceful. I mean, yeah, you're you're yeah, you're here, you're the Labour Party, you're the party for the workers, but apparently not sex workers. Apparently we're not that's not acceptable. Emily, I'm going to ask you the demands of new normal questions. The first question being, what are your current demands? What do you want to happen right now to make our current situation less precarious for the communities you're working with? Um, I mean our, our current demands obviously um in Bristol are obviously to stop the nail cap Mm -hmm. Um, and we do hope um, 
obviously when it does does go out to public consultation the public will be in favour and that proposition will be dropped. Okay um, thank you. Moving on what are your transformative demands? A demand that would cause a dramatic change and help us build the future we want our new normal. The new normal um, I mean we obviously yeah, want full decriminalisation of mm-hmm. sex work um, because that is just what we've been asking for forever that's the best way to keep us safe Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think in general in an ideal world we just want the stigma against sex work to just not exist anymore because the stigma is what makes everything harmful I mean people keep saying sex work is a dangerous profession it's not what makes Mm -hmm. it dangerous is the, the stigma because if we are silenced if we are pushed underground then how can we make ourselves safe for us and yeah you know we want nudity sexuality to be normalized um and yeah if, if these things were normalized um it would stop all these politicians to just you know have this war against us I'm just listening to you and I'm just feeling like this is a whole section of legal workers ostracised from what's deemed acceptable. Unfortunately, again, it's women that are being targeted. Pushing strip clubs underground isn't going to stop these yeah. men from um, purchasing what they like. They're going to mm-hmm. find it either online, they're going to find it in other cities. There'll, there will always be a way for them to find it. Um, but for us, we're losing our safe place. Recently, with the other people in in, uh, in my collective, I've I've been saying even in a in an ideal world where both genders are equal and you know there's no poverty or um, you know inequalities, there will still be people doing sex work because um, you know w- wanting sex is a normal human urge. Thank you. Thank you so much, Annie. Can I, can I ask you to um, tell us what you're doing and, and how our listeners can support you? So I'm part of the Bristol Sex Workers Collective. Um, okay. You can find us on various social medias like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, it's at Bristol SWC. Um, so we've started a petition to support our campaign. Um, it's on change.org. Uh, and it's called Stop Bristol City Council from Closing Bristol Strip Clubs. And I'm going to ask you one more question, if that's okay. If you yeah. have one message for the council, and um, if they're listening there right now, what would you what would you say? I am quite impressed you're listening right now for once. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say um, I I understand your concern for women's safety. Um, but you need to to listen to our voices too, not just um, those groups who are not representative of all women in Bristol and the UK. Um, so do not punish us for the actions of some men. Uh, what you are doing is slut shaming and victim blaming, um, and it's just really harmful. But thank you to Margaret from the Bristol Sex Workers Collective and thank you as always to Kieran Catra uh, with her latest instalment of Demand the New Normal. 
So guys, this ban is based on the argument that strip clubs have a detrimental effect on the wider community. So I'm going to ask my co-hosts which businesses they'd like to see banned that contribute nothing to Bristol. What's it to be? Arms dealers, bookmakers? Uh, For me, it's Hollister, too dark and too overpriced. (laughs) Rohan? (laughs) I I, I struggle with this one because I'm a big fan of shopping, but it would have to be um, the Grecian because I spend half my wage on them. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's an addictive product. Yeah. Right, that is all we've got time for. I'm cutting your mic, my <laughs> Rohan. Uh, follow us on at Agenda Bristol and see you next week. Award-winning community radio station for Bristol, bringing you national news on the hour.